I really feel um, God's, God's laid something specific on my heart. Um, I, I want Him to speak. I want Him to just help. And uh, I don't want to like over-emotionalize it. Um, but like, yes, God has really gripped my heart over the last two weeks, actually. And uh, if, you, if you're new, we are starting, we've started a series called Restoration, um, really based on the book of Nehemiah. And uh, really just feeling called to say, hey, listen, um, we feel called to rebuild uh, this nation, this city, um, but it really starts with us. That re- restoration process starts in us. And so we've done about uh, three weeks. The first week uh, we looked at, I think it was listening to the news, like what, what is going on around you? What are you picking up? And how are you responding to what God is doing? And then the second week we looked at how do we walk with God and how does walking with Him um, impact the way that we respond to the news. And then last week, Clive spoke on uh, Nehemiah as a cupbearer and where God positions you and the attitude we need to have in where God has placed us. Um, not just in times of promotion, not just in the good times, but also in just the mundane. And so, um, really excited. This morning, I'm actually still in Nehemiah 1, which feels wrong. Because uh, it's the first, the fourth week. Uh, but there's something that has really <laughs> stood out uh, from Nehemiah 1 for me. And so I want to share it. Uh, before that, I quickly want to just go through uh, just the situation again of what is actually going in, on in Nehemiah. So if you turn to the screens, um, basically in 5597 to 586 BC, uh, the Babylonians aren't happy. Okay, so basically what's happening is that the Israelites are thriving, they're a strong nation, and the Babylonians don't like it. Okay, and so they decide, no, uh, they, well, they take their time, I guess. They're quite a slow people. Um, they weren't happy for long. And then uh, at 586 BC, um, Babylon actually comes and takes over um, Israel. And uh, what happens is they destroy the temple, they destroy um, the walls, the city, and they take the, the Israelites out of Jerusalem, out of their country, and they basically exile them. They say, well, you guys will have to come with us now. We don't want you to be together because together you have identity, together you have strong, and together you've, you're functioning, which is quite interesting because there was structure and so for those of you that are opposed to structure, if you look at what happened when structure was taken away, it was just chaos. There was no forward movement for that nation. And so that's why today still God works not in structure as in we do X, Y, Z all the time. But God has structures in place because the Spirit moves when there's structures that have been godly ordained and put in place. Anyway, so Israel is in exile. They leave Jerusalem. And then the next uh, thing that happens in 539 BC uh, is that the Persian Empire, and so hopefully you kind of know where that is in the world, I hope. Hey, Umkali? Yeah. You with me? Okay. Um, And so uh, what happens is the Persian Empire actually becomes the powerhouse nation of the world at that time, and they take over Babylon, and with that, they take over the captive and the exiled Jews, and they say to them at that point, listen, guys, we don't have any issues with you. 
Um, you guys can go back if you want to. And the sad thing is that not, not a lot of Jews return to Jerusalem um, because really it's in a desperate state. It's not really a place that you want to go back to. Uh, there's a lot of work there. There's not a lot of fast food restaurants open. Uh, there's not a lot of leisure uh, activities to indulge in. Um, it's really, it's a hard place to go back to. And so not a lot go back, okay, which I know sounds very similar to another place I know. Um, which is why we're doing the series. Um, and so, and then in 516 BC, uh, well, that's the wrong thing, but anyway, basically what happens there is uh, Ezra is uh, a, a godly man, a Jewish man that knows the scripture really well, and he has a desire to rebuild the temple. So he goes back with a group of uh, Jews that he gathers from all over and they go back and they rebuild the temple. Okay, so now the temple has been rebuilt. Not a lot of people have moved back. Um, and now the problem is that the temple has been rebuilt. There's people living in it, but the city isn't safe. Okay, the walls are still down. The city is open to attack easily. There's no men to protect the temple, really. Um, and so what happens in the next uh, date that we have there, 444 B.C., is uh, the story of Nehemiah kicks in, okay? Nehemiah is in uh, that place called, what's it, Susa, um, and he's there, he's the cupbearer like we heard last, uh, last week, and he is uh, serving the king, and he hears reports of what's going on in Jerusalem, okay? And he decides, God grips his heart, and he feels uh, called to go back to uh, Jerusalem and start this restoration process. And so we know he's a cupbearer. Um, everything is really going well for Nehemiah. If you consider his fellow countrymen, he's actually in a really good place. You know, cupbearer to the king, the king that is ruling most of kind of the world at that stage. Um, it's a high position. You know, if you want a job as a Jew, it's not a bad one to have. Okay. And so his world is about to turn upside down. And uh, it's just really interesting for me that we always say this, but the way God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And so this, this week, as I was thinking, actually the last two, three weeks that I've known that I was going to share, there was one passage that has just stood out to me. Uh, but I'm quickly going to go through the whole of just the start of Nehemiah 1. I know we've read it before just quickly go through it. Okay, stay with me. I will know the story really well um, by the end of it. But uh, Nehemiah 1 verse 1, if you are there, let's just quickly chuck it on the screen and you can follow with me. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, hap uh, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani one of my brothers came with certain men to, from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, and I survived, who had survived their exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah is just asking the guys, hey, what's going on? Give me a report. I'm interested. And this next part is what really has gripped me. It says, And as soon as I heard these words, 
I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so I've really asked God, God, make me understand just in my heart what that means. Practically, spiritually, like what, what did Nehemiah go through to feel that concerned about people, you know, something that doesn't really affect him. He's fine. He's comfortable. He's, he's sorted. And so let's continue reading. It says um, uh, in verse 5, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps, com- the, keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants that I now pray before you day and night before uh, the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, uh, the rules that you command your servant Moses. Remember that the word you have commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though you are, you are outcasts and in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So he prays this elaborate prayer, and we'll get into that. Uh, they, they are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of men. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king and that was what Clive spoke about last week. And so this morning, I want to look at Nehemiah briefly and just take out the things of his life, the way he led. And what stands out to me the most about Nehemiah is that he was such a servant leader. He was a leader that wasn't chosen by people. He chose to serve. He chose to put himself in that position. So the title of this message is being a servant leader. And uh, if, if I could give a subtitle to it, it would definitely be what or like, do you mourn? Like, do you weep the way Nehemiah did? When you, when you, have you ever been in a place where God has gripped your heart so much that it's overwhelming, the sensation. Not, not a sense of I'm um, feeling, like Supply was saying, fragile or uh, um, you know, I'm feeling broken, but a sense of God, sheep, as you're so big. And so I want to look at just a couple of things, the way that God calls us all to lead. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, I'm not really a leader, okay? But we're all called to lead. We're all called to lead ourselves in the way we walk with a God, and we're all called to, to lead others. We're all called to disciple, and discipleship includes leadership. And so I want us to say, look and see how should we lead, and the way Nehemiah led was through being a servant. And, go, and so in the Old Testament, God carries out his plan, okay, by raising up servant leaders who possess. And so I'm going to give us three things that servant leaders possess, just from the story of Nehemiah, Okay. Are we all good? Father God, I pray for energy. Lord Jesus, I pray for clarity of mind. Lord Jesus, I pray that that you would be shown through the word. 
And Jesus, that who you are, the way you redeem us, the way you saved us would also come through. Amen. Cool. So the first thing that I notice is Nehemiah has an unselfish concern. Okay. He, he's in the palace. He's fine. He's like crazy sorted. Like he's probably got a steady salary. Uh, he's sorted. Um, and all of a sudden, this guy mourns like he weeps, tears. And uh, I'm probably one of the guys I know um, that I don't mind crying, like, let's be honest. Um, but I know there's a tendency when we see grown men cry to say, hey, yes, you're a softie. You know, like, what's going on, man? Are you, you, you know, what's going on? And I think that when we look at Nehemiah, the first glimpse we see of him is him crying. Hey, this oak's a softie. But if you carry on reading through Nehemiah, which we will do eventually, uh, we get, if you read in chapter 13, he actually gets to a place where he's so frustrated with the disobedience of some of the elders um, in, uh, back in Jerusalem that he goes, he's, he's shouting at them, he's angry at them, and he, he basically starts pulling their hair by their hair, like this oak is so furious, he's so vicious, he's like, you oaks aren't listening, like just, ugh, and uh, you guys can be glad that that's not an elder at KCC, um, but if you look at the leaders God picked in the Old Testament especially, I'm, I would be scared to have guys like that here, because I think it would be rough oaks, um, but he's not a softie, he's a, he's a man of deep concern unselfishly concerned. What is, what, what is in Jerusalem for him? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't even grow up in a place where uh, he was one of the exiled and like, oh, now he remembers the old days. No. He just weeps over the people. He's concerned for the good of God's people. He knows that there are people there that are struggling, that are hurting, that are broken, that don't know, have what they need. And he knows God's people are scattered all over, and he's concerned about that. He forgets about himself and focuses on the need of others. I think that's something that I struggle with. And he doesn't stop there. He actually, he's concerned for the glory of God as well. So he's, got, he's unselfishly concerned about the good of God's people, and also he's concerned about um, God's, the glory of God's name. And, and what I mean by that is I think he would have, he would have known what's, what, he would have heard stories about Jerusalem, Jerusalem in its heyday, like amazing temple, like city just full of life, uh, just God blessing, just God's anointing over that nation, that place. And I think Nehemiah's heart broke because he also realized, yes, there's a temple that's being rebuilt, but there's no walls to protect it. And nations around, around uh, Jerusalem would have looked at it and said, you know what, what's the God you serve? Is the God you serve really that small that it can't even, he can't even kind of protect its own, his own people? Or, you know, you guys, like, I think Nehemiah's heart broke because he knew that God was bigger than that. And God wanted to restore that. And so he was a man that was unselfishly concerned because he, he wasn't concerned about his own well-being. He was concerned about others' well-being. And he was actually concerned and saying, God, you need to be glorified. 
And it breaks my heart that this nation that's been set apart isn't, we can't, we're not doing that. So God, help me do that. And so I really uh, love this statement. It says, God will entrust great tasks to leaders whom he can trust with his glory. So if you're living a life and you're saying, God, I want to bring glory to you. That is my goal in life. In everything I do, God, I want to bring glory to you. God will entrust great tasks to you if that is your heart. Things will fall into your lap out of nowhere like it did for Nehemiah. It just came. Boom. Why? Because he was concerned not about his own glory, but the glory of God. So whose glory are you concerned about today? Is it your own? Is it, hey, my well-being, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm concerned, but it's, it's definitely more selfish. So the first thing is he had unselfish concern. Okay, the second thing is he had uncompromising devotion. And uh, we did touch on this a little bit, that his response to what he heard was because he had such a deeply rooted relationship with God. And so that is what made him respond the way he did, because he was rooted in God. And so I wanted us to just go to verse 4. Uh, it's not going to come up there. It says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned four days. Okay, so four days. That makes sense, so he just mourned four days. But if you actually go to verse 1, it says, uh, In the month of Kislev, okay? If you have markers, if you like marking your Bible, you can circle that and maybe make a note and it. That's actually November, December, okay, in our calendar. So the month of Kislev would be November, December, okay? And uh, he hears this, he mourns, and then actually, so he prays this prayer and what, what not, but the first time he actually addresses the king and asks for permission to go back in chapter 2, it says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, in the month of Nisan, Okay, not like the car dealership, um, but in the month of Nisan. Um, so that is March, April. Okay, so from the moment he heard it, okay, Kislev, in the month of Kislev, to, to the month of Nisan, where he actually responded and he, he asked the king for permission to go back. Okay, it was like five months. Okay, five months of him mourning, praying, seeking God's word. He was a man of devotion. This guy didn't hear of the problem and said, okay, let's get the best educated people on this. Okay, let's plan. Let's strategically find out how we're going to get the right resources. Yes, we're in exile, but let's make a plan. Okay, let's come together. Da, 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 da. Okay, come, let's sit down. How are we going to rebuild the walls? No, this man prayed for five months before he did anything. So is that the kind of devotion that we have in our lives? It's not the devotion I have. Cheaper, sometimes I know I have to go and see someone and I know they're going through something and I'm like, God, sheesh, what am I going to say? Yes, I, I, it's been so busy. Am I, am I just going, I'm just going to open your word and hopefully you help me. But we need to be people that are constantly, prayerfully in God's word, spending time in his presence and seeking his face. And so that's the amazing thing is that uh, he, Nehemiah was uh, uncompromisingly devoted to seeking God's face. And uh, in that, um, if you go through the whole book of Nehemiah, in every single chapter, okay, so there's 13 chapters, in every single chapter, Nehemiah is praying. 
You can go through it. 12 out of the 13 chapters, there's a prayer from Nehemiah. And he's seeking God's face. He brings him glory. And uh, it's in that that I just want to say, like, we seek God's face because he is sovereign. And only when we understand, and I love what Mark was, what you were sharing earlier, that actually when we encounter the bigness of God, the sovereignty of God, he's in control of everything. Everything just seems to fade away. Yeah, it doesn't just go away. <laughs> but God's bigness just overshadows things. When it's all about him, bringing glory to him, he can come in and meet us supernaturally where we need him. And so Nehemiah was seeking God's face because he knew God was sovereign. That's the first place he needs to go. And uh, I want, if you're taking notes, uh, we don't have time to do this, but in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36, if you're taking notes, Second Chronicles 36 verses 15 to 23 is actually um, way back like a couple of you know, years before this whole thing transpired. There's an account of all of this that is going down and it just shows that everything that happened was ordained by God. God allowed it to happen. So the whole exile, guys being returned, the king saying, hey, you can go, we'll bless you. God actually prophesied that. God is sovereign. He's in charge. What's happening right now in this country, God's sovereign. He's in control. He wants this to happen. What's happening in your life, my life, God is sovereign. He's in control. How are we responding to that? Okay, first step Nehemiah does is that. And so if, you, if we just read his prayer there, uh, go to verse 5 in Nehemiah 1. It says, and he said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. So he says, you are great and you're an awesome God. That's how he starts his prayer. And so his thing there, the second thing is that he knows God is sovereign. God is awesome. Okay, so we know God is sovereign. We know he is awesome. And I wonder sometimes that how many of us pray, but our prayers stay the same every single day. You know, it's not really growing. Yeah, a lot of people say that talking, well, we say this thing that, you know, praying is just talking to God, which I think is true, but I don't think it's just that. God is God. He's big. And uh, when, when you look at a two-year-old and the way they talk to, uh, you know, their parents, and you look at the way a 22-year-old would talk to her parents, there's a difference. There's a difference in the way we approach. There's a difference in the vocabulary we use. There's a difference because there's been years of relationship. There's so much background, so much love, so much journeying in that conversation. When, if we heard a 22-year-old talk the same way that they would when they were two-year-old to their parents, we would think they're retarded. Think shame, you know, like, oh, no disrespect, but we would say, hey, shame. There must be something wrong here. Sadly, I think that a lot of us have journeyed with God for years, decades, but yet we're at the same level we were maybe two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Our relationship isn't growing. And you know why? And, you know, I, I, I'm just saying that doesn't mean prayer has to sound good. It's actually in here. It's that lifestyle of prayer that changes. 
Um, and so when we encounter his sovereignty, how awesome he is, that changes the way we talk to him. God, you are great. You said you have done this in your word, blah, 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 blah. God, when I was five, five years ago, I was going through the same situation and you responded to me in this way. You promised this to me. That's, the, that's growth in our relationship. And so I just want to encourage us this morning, guys, we need to be devoted to God. And He needs to become sovereign. He needs to become awesome. And He, needs to, he is faithful. That's what uh, Nehemiah says. He says, keep, um, O Lord God of heaven, the great, the awesome God, who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His command. And so God is faithful. And Nehemiah knows that. He's like, God, I'm going to be devoted to you because you will always be devoted to me. No matter what, God, you will never leave my side. So how can I turn my back on you? God, I will remain faithful to you in everything I do. And uh, the, the fourth thing that I just see in his prayer there is that he, he says, God, you are holy. Cheap as God, you are a holy God. Uh, if you if just don't miss what happens in verse six here, it says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I know, now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah wasn't there. He, he wasn't a part of the process of Israel sinning and getting exiled. But what does he do? He repents for the sins of others. He comes in and says, God, I'm sorry for, for what happened. I'm sorry for the sins that, yes, I've committed. But really, it's not him. It was his forefathers and brothers and people that have committed those sins against God before that, you know, that exiled them. He, and he, so his concern for others comes out there as well. I don't know how many of us would come to, to something like church or, you know, you're going to life groups or even you're just meeting with people that, yes, you know, these guys are Christian, but actually, hey, there's, you're struggling, you know, hey, like church should be structured this way or we should be doing this or whatever. You know, we can always talk about issues in church. There will always be stuff that we're not 100% happy with. But what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah doesn't say, God, yeah, Israel, sheesh, these forefathers of mine messed up. No, no, no. He actually apologizes and he repents on behalf of others. When was the last time, and I'm talking to myself here, that, that we prayed and we said, God, sorry for the sin in this church. Sorry for, for the way that we stumble. But God, we need you. We need you to restore us so that we can restore this nation. Yet we come with a, with a selfish thing of saying, God, oh, these people, if, if only these people could change. Say, God, help me. May we all change. So he had an uncompromising devotion to seeking God's face because he knew that was who God was. And he also knew uh, he had an uncompromising uh, devotion to knowing God's word. And uh, you see that uh, in Nehemiah 8 to, 8 to 9, and I'll, I'll finish with this. It says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen and they will dwell there. 
what he's doing there is he's actually quoting Deuteronomy. I think it's Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 10. Okay, so Nehemiah knew God's word. Okay, he, it was from that place that he had devotion. He, it was from that place that he could respond. He had a deep understanding of what God had promised and uh, what God had said. And he knew that actually, I don't have any promises except for God's word. And, and when we approach God, we can, we can hold him accountable to this because he's faithful. So if he said something to you from this word, you find it, he's faithful. You can hold him accountable to it. God's word has power. And uh, we, last year we did that Unstoppable series. And uh, in Acts 6 and 7, Stephen, I don't know if you remember the story, he got up and basically what he did is he just shared the whole story like of the Bible, just going like one like thing at the uh, you know like one thing after the other, just like putting God in every single moment, sharing Jesus, sharing the gospel from Genesis, Exodus, the story of Moses, the story like just going through, and he uses this and he says, God, you were here, da da da, and people turn to God because why? Because he had an understanding of God's word. How devoted are we to knowing God's word, the promises that he has given us? Lastly, there's an, I see, so he's got an unselfish concern for God's people and God's glory. He's got an uncompromising devotion. And then lastly, he's got an unyielding desire. He's got an unyielding desire to see God honored, God's name honored. And so he's willing to go through all of this to see God's, God's glory, God's name restored. He's got an unyielding desire to see that. And he's also got an unyielding desire to risk everything for God's purpose. And if you, cup, being a cup bearer, like it's actually just so ironic or God's just poetic, I guess, that he takes a man that would risk his life on a daily basis and he puts him in another situation where he has to do that the same as well. Even though he's fulfilling God's purposes, we'll see in chapters 3, chapters 4, all the way through, he gets opposed. There's opposition that comes. When we try and achieve the things God has placed in front of us, opposition will come. And we need unyielding desire to accomplish those things. So we said in the Old Testament, God raises up these people with these kind of characteristics. And in the New Testament, okay, God accomplishes his plan by raising up the ultimate servant leader whose concern leads him to the cross. God, Jesus was so concerned about our well-being. He was so unselfishly concerned that it led him to the cross. There's a beautiful moment in Luke 19, where Jesus comes over this hill and he sees a city and the city is Jerusalem and it says he weeps. He weeps. Just like Nehemiah was captivated, Jesus weeps because he's concerned about the well-being of God's people, you and me, and he's concerned about God's glory. Jesus' unselfish desire, concern leads him to the cross. His devotion leads him to his death. Okay? And his desire to encounter us leads us to salvation. 
That's the servant leader that we need to try and intimidate. Intimidate, imitate. <laughs> Can't intimidate him. So today, what does this mean for us? Today, God is continuing his plan by raising up servant leaders who will demonstrate unselfish concern, uncompromising devotion, and unhealing desire for the glory of Christ in the church. And so this morning, I want to ask you, does that sound like you? Is that a good description of your life right now? Are you a person when, when someone looks at you, sheesh, you demonstrate unselfish concern? For the people around you, for people in your workplace, family members that are struggling, that don't know him, do you show unselfish concern? Or is it just day by day, hey, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's my family, we need to make sure we're fine. Do we show uncompromising devotion to God? When was the last time you wept because God captivated your heart? Have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe you've never even experienced the Spirit of God stirring you. And do you have an unyielding desire to bring glory to God? And so when we look at Nehemiah's life, the fruit of him, the restoration process, the fact that he, he raised a whole nation together, they rebuilt the wall in like 51 days, like all these fruits of his life, we need to say, hey, what, who was this guy? This guy put up his hand and God used him. But it was because God saw all those characteristics in him. And God said, I'll, I'll use you. I'll use you. Awesome. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, just your amazing example. Jesus, when we, when we look at the way you served, Jesus, we, we, are, we can only be blown away. Jesus, you, you desire to, to have us all encounter you, Lord. Father God, when we, when we look at how, how bad our sin is, how, how deadly it is, eternally, wrong father god sin is father god we know that there's no way that we can come to you lord only through the sacrifice jesus made being a servant and lord jesus i pray that father god if there's anyone here this morning that that is saying Sheesh, i need to i need to encounter that jesus because i need i need help because my life doesn't reflect the kind of leadership that nehemiah or jesus reflects Lord Jesus, I pray for anybody right now that needs Jesus in their life, Father God. May they open up their hearts to you right now. Lord Jesus, I pray for, for all of us, Lord. May, may we encounter you every single day, your faithfulness, your sovereignty, your holiness, your awesomeness, Father God. May we encounter you every single day. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May we be servant leaders in this community. Amen.